but hey, welcome to Sojourn. As I said earlier, my name is Justin. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, we're in a series in the book of Matthew. We're walking through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so we've started that, uh, I guess it's been a couple of months now, um, almost. And so we're going to continue to be in that uh, for the next several months. But this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, if you don't actually have a Bible with you, we'd love for you to be able to read along with us. We actually have a few folks that have Bibles. If you just raise your hand, they'd love to give one to you. So just keep your hand up till they find you if you need one this morning. And know those are there for you if you don't actually own a Bible uh, to be able to take that home. It's, a, it's our, our gift to you. We want you to have God's Word uh, to be able to read it throughout the week. Uh, But as we get settled in this morning, before we jump into a few verses in Matthew 5, let's just go to the Lord uh, in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning and we just ask that you would do uh, something significant in our time together today. You say that your word is living and active, and so we pray that we would sense the, the reality of that this morning, that your word would pierce our hearts today. We pray as we look at a few verses this morning as Jesus continues to unpack uh, the characteristics of his kingdom people that you would bring conviction to our lives and our hearts today. And that we as a local church here in Fairfax, as we look at the landscape of our culture and our society, would embrace the reality of where you have us and seek to live out what you've called us to live out. Not for our glory, not for our praise, but for yours. But Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to do a work in us today. We are stiff-necked people. We are stubborn in our our thoughts and our ways. And so we pray that through your word this morning that you would change that, that you would break that down today to help us to be faithful. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your continual grace in our lives that tomorrow we're going to mess up and the next day we're going to mess up and the next day we're going to mess up, but you are faithful and kind and loving and gracious and patient with us. So we pray that we would know your patience, know your grace today know it tomorrow and know it the day after that and continue to seek to walk faithfully with you. So we pray that this morning would be helpful towards that end. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I graduated uh, several years ago uh, from Virginia Tech, but uh, there may be a few Hokies here this morning. Any Hokies here this morning? Like two? Okay, awesome. (laughs) Whew, all right. Uh, but, you know, the first two years of college, though, I didn't go to Virginia Tech. I actually went to the University of Tennessee. Uh, all right. There we go. Uh, and so I, I, I transferred to Virginia Tech, had to go see about a girl uh, who I am married to now. Uh, so it turned out, it turned out okay. <laughs> um, but uh, the first two years of college, I went to the University of Tennessee. And so even transferring to Virginia Tech, I'm a, I'm a Hokie fan. I like to root for the Hokies, but I still like to root for the Tennessee Volunteers. Still a favorite team. You can find orange and white at my house in my closet. And if you know my, my parents, my brother who are here this morning, uh, they also are big UT fans during football season. It's likely that you'll see them sporting orange on a regular basis as they root on the Volunteers. But, you know, one of uh, UT's biggest rivals in football are the Florida Gators. And uh, there may be a few Florida Gators fans here. I'm sorry if that's the case. Uh, but, you know, one of the best things that you can do if you're a Florida fan or a UT fan is actually go to their football game, whether that's at Nayland Stadium or at the Swamp. It's, a, it's just an awesome, exhilarating experience to go into these stadiums during these games that are packed out, and there's just such a, a tense rivalry there. It's just an awesome experience. But something you wouldn't want to do in going to one of those games, if you're a UT fan, is to sit in the section with all the the Florida fans. It would be a bad experience for you because you'd you'd stick out like a sore thumb, thumb, first off, uh, standing out there with your your UT gear on, cheering on your team, 
wanting them to win. There'd be nobody around you to high five when your team scores. And that works the other way as well. You wouldn't want to be a UF fan sitting amongst a bunch of volunteer fans. It wouldn't be a great experience for you. But what makes it that way? What's the contrast, right? I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a stark contrast that exists when you're a UT fan amongst a bunch of Florida fans or vice versa. And in this case, it's the contrast of allegiance. You're following a different team. You're rooting on a different football team or a different school in that experience, that time. And that can happen all across different sporting events. Contrast that creates difficulty and uncomfortable situation pops up in all of life. You could probably think of those situations in my home, a contrast that is oftentimes causes some, some animosity is when my two-and-a-half-year-old Isaac decides to bust into his sister's room after she's been sleeping, and it's all dark and quiet, and the noisemaker's on, and he comes in and just yells and screams and turns on the lights. Obviously, she's not too happy about that. She usually responds by crying or screaming as well. It's not because Emery doesn't like light or noise. It's just that stark, subtle contrast that breaks into her environment. Stark contrast often highlights differences, and at times those differences can create or breed animosity. You know, for several weeks now, we've been walking through these first few verses in the book of Matthew in chapter 5 as Jesus is teaching on, beginning teaching on the kingdom of God. He's talking about the characteristics of the kingdom and his kingdom people, and we've looked at these first few verses over these last few weeks, and they're oftentimes called the Beatitudes or blessings that Jesus gives. He's teaching his disciples, showing them the characteristics of his kingdom people for those who are actually following the king and seeking to walk in his ways. But what we've seen in these first few verses and what we're going to continue to see as we walk through this series is that Jesus' kingdom is upside down. It's inverted. When it's, and it's, we see that inversion, we see that upside down nature of his kingdom in contrast with the way that the world we live in operates. At times, it's a stark contrast. In a world that says it's the rich and the strong and the powerful that are most important. In a world that says that personal happiness is the primary pursuit of life. That says that boastful self-confidence is what will get you ahead in life. That says that looking out for me is the thing that you should do. That you should look out for number one. That's understandable. It's even encouraged. In a world that says that slander and gossip and tearing down your enemies is okay. When we hear things then like it's the poor in spirit who are given the kingdom of God, or it's those who mourn that are comforted, or those who are meek and gentle who will inherit the earth, those who are merciful that will receive mercy, those who are peacemakers who will be called sons of God, it highlights a stark contrast. And that contrast does two things. First off, it tells Jesus' kingdom people that his kingdom and their calling are not of this world. That continues to press on his people that following him, following him and his ways means renouncing the ways and wisdom of the world we find ourselves in. But it can also lead to animosity. It can lead to animosity from those who are of this world and who seek to promote and embrace the ways and the wisdom of this world. Now, why do I say all that this morning? Well, we're coming to the end of these beatitudes, these blessings, these characteristics that Jesus is talking about for his kingdom people. And what we're going to see this morning is as we look at these few verses, they're going to make a whole lot more sense when we understand the contrast of his kingdom to the kingdom of this world and see this additional call on God's people to embrace life at the margins for his glory and for our good. 
And so I pray this morning, as I prayed earlier, my hope this morning is that we would, we would see this word, we would embrace this word, and that God would use his word to convict us this morning, to challenge us this morning, and to encourage us as his people here and now to embrace our citizenship, not as Americans, but as people who are part of God's kingdom, citizens of heaven, and that the increasing contrast and consequences of living life for Jesus in this world, we would embrace the reality of what that looks like no matter how difficult or challenging it might be as we wait for Jesus to come again or call us home. My hope is, is that we would be a people who rejoice in living life at the margins. So may God bless the preaching of his word this morning. If you haven't already, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 10 through 12 this morning. Over the last few weeks, we've started reading uh, in verse 1. I'm not going to do that this morning. We're just going to read verses 10, 11, and 12. So flip open to Matthew chapter 5, and hear Jesus' words to you this morning. He says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we come to the close of this section in this Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus taking uh, two blessings, and they're kind of about the same thing. They're about persecution, and so we're going to look at them together and really answer four questions this morning. The four questions we're going to answer are, what does Jesus mean by persecution? Maybe you've heard that word before, maybe you haven't, but we want to give a definition to that. What does Jesus mean by persecution? Our second question is, why are God's people persecuted? Our third question is, why does he say it's blessed to be persecuted? And lastly, how are we doing? How are we doing with living life at the margins? So what does Jesus mean by persecution? Well, persecution at its core is about opposition. To be persecuted is to have someone come at you or be against you or be hostile towards you, oppose you because of who you are or what you look like or what you believe or what you do. Persecution oftentimes can manifest itself in a very physical sense with actual physical violence. Throughout history, even today, we can look around the world and see persecution taking place, persecution happening in and around the world right now in a very physical sense. There's beatings and imprisonment, rape, murder. But Jesus helps us to understand that persecution is those things, but it's not only those things. In verse 11, he equates persecution to when someone reviles you, when they, when they speak evil against you, when they say false things about you, is also persecution. So whatever form it takes, persecution is painful for the one being persecuted. I think all of us have heard the childhood saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But we all know, likely from personal experience, that that's just not the case. In James chapter 3, we see that our words have the power of life and of death. When we speak to people, we can speak to them in a way to encourage them and build them up, or we can speak to them in a way to bring death. That's the goal of persecution. Whatever form it takes, whether physical or verbal, it's painful because it seeks to demoralize a person. It seeks to tear them down, to destroy their joy, to destroy their identity. Its goal is to debase, to shame, to ridicule, and ruin a person. That is the goal of persecution. So why are God's people persecuted then? Our second question, and this is an important one to answer. 
So we have to remember this is a beatitude. Jesus is speaking to his kingdom people. He's speaking to his disciples. He says in verse 11, blessed are you. That's the first time he said that. He's always talking about blessed are they, blessed are those. But here he looks directly at these people. You can imagine Jesus sitting with this group of people who have been drawn close to him, his, his disciples who've left everything to follow him. Peter and Andrew and James and John and likely other disciples. They've, they've literally dropped everything to follow Jesus. And he looks them in the eyes and he says, blessed are you. Blessed are you, my disciples, my followers, my people, when others revile you or persecute you. So why are they persecuted? Well, Jesus tells us, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. See, the persecution that Jesus is talking about is not political, it's not ethnic, it's about persecution that comes because you're living your life for Him and you're walking in His ways. It isn't general persecution or reviling, but we also need to make sure that we understand something else. It also isn't a persecution or reviling due to shameful or ignorant activity in the name of Jesus. See, unfortunately, throughout the history of the church, there's been a lot of things done in the name of Christ that are not honoring to him. And persecution has come, reviling has come because of that, but they're foolish things. Protesting in the name of Jesus at a soldier's funeral is shameful. Yelling at girls on a college campus, calling them sluts and whores and telling them that they're going to go to hell is shameful. And so if you do those things and you're persecuted or reviled because of those things, you are not blessed because that's not the way of Jesus. Jesus doesn't shame people. If anybody's ever told you that, that's a lie. It's not true. Jesus doesn't shame people. Jesus doesn't devalue anyone or speak down to anyone. All are created in the image of God. Jesus goes to people. He loves people. He goes to the sick. He goes to the marginalized. He goes to the corrupt and the prostitute, the unclean. Jesus goes to the lowest of the low in culture and society. He offers them grace because he loves them and he cares for them. He calls his people to do the same thing in the same manner. We looked at all this already. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be given or receive mercy. See, Jesus' kingdom people will be persecuted, not just because they claim the name of Christ, but because they're walking in the ways of Christ. Because the ways of Jesus are so upside down, so in contrast with the way of the world. See, the people he's talking about and the people that he has talked about through all these first few verses are not wild-eyed fanatics that are just raving about a cause. They're not walking out with their picket signs or, or just yelling and screaming things out in life. That's not who he's talking about. These are people who are determined to live as Jesus lived. And the way that Jesus lived is very different than the way the world commends and calls us to live. The world we live in right now and the world of Jesus today commends and, and exceeds to exalt the superman and the superwoman. But who does Jesus commend? He commends the little child to us. It's very upside down from the way the world thinks. So the wisdom and the ways of God are foolishness to the world. He calls the weak. He calls the poor. He calls the broken. He calls the hurting to himself. And then he calls his people to go to those people. To lay down everything to count everything as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing God and being known by him, to find satisfaction in the creator and not his creation. I've quoted oftentimes throughout this series so far from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed in the Nazi concentration camp because he stood up for the ways of Jesus. 
this is what he says. He says, with every beatitude, the gulf is widened between the disciples and the people. And their call to come forth from the people becomes increasingly manifest. In other words, Jesus' people should increasingly look very different than the world. Because when you start to follow Jesus, everything changes for you. That's the reality of the gospel. The reality of the gospel is that you've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives within you. The reality of the gospel in your life is that the old is gone and the new has come. The reality of the gospel in, the life, in your life is that you're no longer enslaved to sin, that you've died to sin and been made alive in Christ. So now you can walk with him and follow the voice of your king. See, when Jesus died and rose again, he enacted the full weight of his invitation call to us in Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew 16, Jesus says this, foreshadowing what he would do for us. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then listen to this. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? See, this is the reality of being strangers and sojourners and exiles in a place that's not our home. As people in this world, but not of this world. It's what the Apostle Paul is getting at in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He says there, indeed, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus' kingdom people then have an unwillingness to compromise. An unwillingness to compromise the ways of the king for personal gain or comfort. And that's difficult in an ever-increasing self-seeking world that's diametrically opposed to the kingship of Jesus. God's kingdom people hear the voice of their king and they, they love him and they want to walk closely with him because they believe and they know that life and peace and joy are found in him and him alone. See, the ways of Jesus and his kingdom are so different than the ways of this world. Conflict is inevitable. It's inevitable. Because a life lived for Jesus and his ways, they actually indict the world for living differently. If you seek to walk in the ways of Jesus, your life indicts the ways of the world. But it doesn't do it through insult. It's not through judgment. You don't look at the world and judge the world for acting like the world. That's not what Jesus is calling you to do here. But just your lifestyle will indict the world for living differently because it provides this stark contrast. It challenges people and it challenges their self-justification for what they love most. It confronts the world with the reality that real life and real joy and real peace are found through sacrifice and service and following a crucified and risen king. To God's kingdom, people are opposed by the world because of the offensive nature of the gospel of grace that says to you that you are dead and you need a savior. They're not opposed because of some caricature of the kingdom of God. See, sometimes I think we need to recognize that persecution comes because as God's people, following the king means not doing what the world says it's okay to do. Not doing what the world says it's okay to do. The persecuted then are those who seek God's will in spite of what others want or say. They're those who love God so much that they're faithful to him when they're oppressed. They're those who follow Jesus so unreservedly that they're willing to suffer for him. This beatitudes, the, the Beatitudes end with this. And I think the reason they end with this is because when you come close to the king, 
as we've talked about throughout these first few weeks in the series, when you come close to Jesus, when you seek to follow him in his ways, when these characteristics are manifested in your life that we've looked at over these first few verses, you will experience persecution and trial because it's so different than what the world says for you to do and how to live. Jesus is essentially saying, if you follow me, you'll be persecuted because they persecuted me. They persecuted all those that came before me that talked about me. So you should expect the, the same thing. But this is a good thing. Seems weird, right? Like persecution's a good thing, but this is the upside down nature of Jesus' kingdom. And this leads us to our third question. Why does he say it's blessed to be persecuted? I mean, maybe we can understand why we would be persecuted. If we're following Jesus, we can understand the difference in the, the way the world calls us to live and the way that Jesus calls us to live. But, but why is it a good thing? Why does Jesus say it's, it's blessed to be reviled and slandered? Why does he say rejoice and be glad when this happens? Well, first, what is the blessing? It's kind of a twofold blessing, but really the same thing. He says the blessing, blessing is the kingdom of heaven and a great reward in heaven that we get to be with Jesus, that we get to be in the kingdom with him, that, that the fullness of the kingdom belongs to us. But this rejoicing, this being glad over this is not some masochistic kind of thing that like we, we enjoy pain, give us more pain, we like this. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. That's not why we rejoice. That's not why we're glad. No, the reason is, is because it, it's an evidence of contrast. It's an evidence of contrast. No one can accuse me of being a Florida Gator fan. They're never going to see me cheering for the Florida Gators. And if you're saying, well, I'm not really sure, maybe you're a secret closet Florida Gator fan, you can come look in my closet because there's nothing in there that's going to tip you off that secretly I cheer on for the Gators. I have a friend of mine, though, and he went to the University of Tennessee as well, and he is a, he's a Vol fan, but he married a girl who went to the University of Alabama. I know. <laughs> Sad. Most of the time, though, if you watched him, you, you, would, you would recognize that he, is a, that he is a Tennessee fan. But if you went to his house and you look in his closet, you don't even have to go that far. You can just look on Instagram and see him sporting the Alabama's of Crimson Tides attire. And, and UT and Alabama historically have a big rivalry. So what happens is this? The contrast is lost. Are you, are you faithful to the Vols or are you faithful to the Crimson Tide? I'm not sure sometimes. The, 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 the identification is lost. His identity as a UT fan is clouded by his identification with being an Alabama fan. So which one is it? See, when there's contrast in your life, when there's a contrast with following Jesus consistently and faithfully, there should be no confusion. Do, do you follow the way of the world or are you following the way of the king? Jesus is saying persecution comes when you're consistently, faithfully following him, no matter what. Persecution for Jesus' kingdom people comes only because they're living for him, following him, making much of him, and not going the way of the world. It's evidence of the fact that they are indeed a part of the kingdom of God. There's no admixture or combination. It's all or nothing in following Jesus. See, the inverted nature of Jesus' inverted kingdom is that persecution is a source of joy. It's a source of blessing because when you're persecuted for righteousness sake, when you're persecuted for the name of Jesus and for following him, it's a triumphant sign that the kingdom belongs to you. It belongs to you. And one day, you'll be with him forever. Dietrich Bonhoeffer again says, the faith community of the blessed is a community of the crucified. With him, they lost everything. And with him, they found everything. As Jesus was reviled and ridiculed, so will his followers be. See, the world calls us a source of shame. A source of shame. 
There's an old picture uh, that mocked, mocked Jesus dying on the cross, and it was the body of a man nailed to a cross with the head of a donkey. Saying, you know, Jesus, th- th- this is shameful for you to do this. And anybody that follows him should be ashamed of that. But God's kingdom, people see it as a source of joy. We're proud to be a community of the crucified. Because in losing everything that the world says is most precious and most valuable, we recognize that we gain that which is most real and precious, life and peace with the living God. But now we find ourselves living in enemy-occupied territory. The fullness of the kingdom of God hasn't come yet. And so we're strangers, we're sojourners, we're exiles. This is not our home. And so what we can expect in that, what we should expect in that is to experience in this life is hostility because we follow a different king. So in this world, where do God's people find this, ple- this place of peace? They find it at the place where the poor and the weak and the most tempted always reside, at the foot of the cross. See, Jesus says to you this morning, in the midst of your persecution, in the midst of suffering for his name, blessed, blessed, you will be welcomed into the kingdom to dine at the table of the king and be fully transformed and restored. It's the reality of what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you're taking notes this morning, you're looking at your phone, you're distracted right now, I just want you to stop and I want you to listen to Paul's words to you this morning. This is what he says to you. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. This treasure, the the gospel truth. The fact that we can be reconciled to God in jars of clay. He's talking about his physical body. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay for what reason? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work within us, but life in you. Listen to what Paul says, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So then he says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. See, this beatitude and Paul's words are a call to have our hearts in heaven and not the things of this world. Because suffering the loss of all things pales in comparison to the eternal rewards of heaven and being with the King of Kings forever and ever. Isn't it interesting that in the end, Jesus congratulates those who the world pities the most. He calls the world's rejects blessed because this is the upside down way of our King and His kingdom and it's glorious. So the question we need to ask ourselves this morning then is how are we doing? How are we doing? Maybe you think that's weird. We're like, how, how am I doing with being persecuted? Maybe we should title this, How Are We Doing With Living Life at the Margins? Where this is a call for us to live life at the margins. See, the reality is many of our brothers and sisters around the world know the reality of this beatitude with great clarity and regularity. Because for them, their life lived for Christ warrants persecution on a daily basis. And we can learn from them. 
There are many places in this world right now where if you identify with or you follow or you tell other people about Jesus, it's a capital crime resulting in the death penalty. Places like Saudi Arabia. Isn't it interesting that that our country, because of our political relationship with Saudi Arabia, never talks about this? It's one of the worst offenders of human rights in all of history. Because if you claim the name of Jesus or you tell your neighbor about Jesus, they will haul you out and chop your head off for doing that. We don't hear about that. We never talk about it. But it's the reality for our brothers and sisters who live there. There's other places like that as well. But see, what about here? Right, right now, right, right here in, in this time in Fairfax, Virginia, in America right now, you are not going to get taken to jail. You are not going to die, likely, for your faith. But we live in an interesting and challenging time. We live in a changing time. Religious liberties in America continue to be reduced and attacked and marginalized. So what do we do with that? Oftentimes we hear people say things like, America is a Christian nation. We need to return to our roots. But here's the deal. That is not an honest statement. America has never been a Christian nation. Most of the founding fathers were deists. They were slave owners. Oftentimes what was talked about when it came to religion in America was legalistic, not gospel-centric. But there have been long periods of time within our country where religious liberty existed And values that were consistent with some aspects of Christianity have been upheld. And so we feel that loss as the church has moved to the margins more and more in America. But I want you to listen to me this morning. That is a very, very good thing. It's a very good thing for the church. Because America has been full of cultural Christianity. There's been a watering down of what it means to know Jesus and follow him. A very simplistic way, a a cheap grace, a cheap Christianity that says all you need to do is pray a prayer or walk down an aisle or throw your stick in the fire. You're good to go. It doesn't matter how you live. Claim the name of Christ and you get the benefits of the kingdom. And at times it's been advantageous in America to be called a Christian, even if you weren't actually following Jesus. But today we see the reality of increased contrast in society from the ways of Christ. We see see this contrast coming and it's, it's in areas of human life. Human sexuality, marriage, money, the environment, how we treat people who look different than us or come from a different place than us. Brothers and sisters, you realize these are not political issues, right? These are gospel issues because God is the one who made all things. He's the creator of human life. He's the sustainer of life. He created human sexuality. He ordained marriage. He gives all of us our resources and our money. He created the environment and told us to be good stewards of it, not abusers of it. He created the nations and said the gospel of grace is for all people, regardless of what they look like. We need to realize, I hope we understand this, there are going to be more people in the kingdom of God who are not white and don't speak English than there are those that do. That's the reality of the world we live in. So when we act different and speak different and take up political mantras that say something different, we're not walking in the way of the king. The contrast in America is increasing because it's becoming more and more inconvenient not to only claim the name of Christ but to actually follow him. And here's the deal. Our brothers and sisters in Yemen, in the Maldives, in Burma, in Indonesia, in Iraq, in Syria, in Saudi Arabia already know this. They already know it. See, standing up for the king in his ways, seeking to follow him in all of your life in America will, it will increasingly affect you. 
I can tell you that right now. It will increasingly affect you. It's going to affect your employment. It's going to affect your advancement. It's going to affect your education. It's going to affect your ability to obey the government and its mandates. See, for a long time, the church has been able to follow the king of the land and the king of kings, but it's becoming increasingly difficult to do so. But listen, we can't bow to the Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue and worship Jesus at the same time. If we're a part of Jesus' kingdom, the time is coming when the call comes to follow the state or follow the king and God's true people. This is what Jesus is getting at here. God's kingdom people will choose to be thrown into the fiery furnace rather than bow down to a pretend king who might masquerade as an angel of light and promise to make America great again for you. The contrast is increasing in our country and our community and that's a good thing. Because a brighter light has a greater impact in utter darkness. And the light of the gospel is not squelched when the church is moved to the margin. It radiates more clearly, more brightly than it ever did before. Because the clarion call of the gospel is so different, such in contrast to the false gospels of our culture. When persecution comes, it purifies the church. It shows those who are actually following the king or those who are only claiming the rights and advantages of the kingdom. See, in a world that's set against God and his ways, a world that's ruled by the prince of the power of the air, who blinds the hearts and minds of unbelievers, we shouldn't expect an open-air reception of the message that we preach that says we are utterly lost, unable to know God on our own. We are desperately wicked and in need of restoration. A message that says that we are completely dead in our sin and in need of new life that says that we're enslaved to that sin and in need of redemption. And none of that comes by way of self-actualization or wealth or knowledge or ethnicity or birthright. It comes through believing in our hearts that Jesus died for us and rose again for us. It comes from reaching out our hands and embracing him as our only hope in this life and the life to come. You are not a Christian because you're an American. You're a Christian because you follow the crucified king who's sitting on the throne right now and who's calling you to follow him faithfully and fully and completely, whether your family or your culture or your employer or your community or your president or your country approve. Persecution for the name of Christ has been normal in the life of the church. It just hasn't been normal in America. There will always be those who oppose God's people. There will always be those who oppose God's people. We can see it in the pages of scripture. We can see it through the pages of history. Because Jesus' kingdom is upside down to the pseudo-kingdoms of this world. So, this means, as one scholar says, I think this is such a challenging quote, he says this, we should not be surprised if anti-Christian hostility increases, but rather be surprised if it doesn't. This is a litmus test of sorts. To evaluate our lives, to look at our own church. If you're experiencing no persecution at any level For living for Jesus, you have to ask yourself, am I living my life in such a way that's countercultural to the kingdom of this world? Is it clear that I'm living for the king and his kingdom? Where is righteousness being displayed in my life? Or to put it more bluntly, are you living a life worth persecuting? Are you living a life worth reviling by the world? But again, let's make sure it isn't because of your offensive personality or methodology or lack of Christ-like character. What about their church? What about our church? Are we as a local church consistently preaching and applying a message that calls all who listen to follow one king and not be divided in our allegiance? 
See, we should embrace life at the margins as God's people because historically this is where God's people have been. They gathered in the catacombs. They were killed in the arenas. They were burned at the stake. They worship in homes in secret. They're imprisoned and flogged and mocked. They're beheaded on the beaches of Libya. They've been destitute, afflicted, and mistreated for the last 2,000 years. And Hebrews chapter, chapter 11 says that the world is not worthy of them. It's not worthy of them. Those are our people, church. Those are our people. And one day we will stand in glory with them, worshiping the lamb who was spat on, who was beaten, who was persecuted and crucified and slain for us. When the church is in the margins of society, it has its greatest fruitfulness. We see this throughout history. That was the early church's experience. People were beaten and thrown in jail, and the disciples, the apostles said, oh, we were counted worthy to suffer for our king. And thousands upon thousands of people came to know Jesus. It's happening in China. It's happened historically in China over the last several years. There are thousands upon thousands of people coming to know Jesus as their Lord and their Savior in China right now, even though it's not allowed, it's not okay to be able to do that. It's happening in Europe right now. Europe was at one time the, the center of, of a scholarship for Christianity, but in, in recent decades, in recent years, it's become what we could call post-Christian. In many places in Europe, there are less than 2% of people that actually believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are many people from all the nations coming to Europe right now, and so, so it looks like the church is dying off because churches have been turned into museums in Europe, but you know what's happening right now in Europe? Churches are being planted They're not preaching a false gospel. They're not preaching a watered-down gospel because it's not advantageous to call yourself a Christian in Europe anymore. But people are coming to know Jesus, the real Jesus, King Jesus. More and more churches are being planted. More and more people are hearing the truth of the gospel. People have never heard the name of Christ. The church is at the margins in Europe, but the church is exploding there as well. That's happening all over the world in different places. So it's a good thing for America to become less Christian Because it's in that space that true Christianity, that truly follows and worship King Jesus, will thrive. It thrives because it's authentic and real. It thrives because to embrace it, the only reason you would embrace it is because it's your only hope. Knowing and being known by our awesome God. So Sojourn, listen to me. Let's stop protesting and complaining over our loss of rights. let's, Let's pull back from protesting and complaining that the world is acting like the world. And instead, go to those people and tell those people that there's a better kingdom and there's a better king and there's a better world that you can be a part of through him. I mean, what if we embraced the contrast? What if we embraced life at the margins and all that comes with it and sought to be light in the darkness, sought to bring life in a place of death? Maybe that's your home or your school or your workplace, your gym or your neighborhood. In this life, you will suffer loss for following the king, but it's worth it because the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. This is temporary, light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that we get through Jesus. J.C. Ryle, who was a pastor and scholar, said this once. If you've been in the Sojourn membership class, you've heard this quote before. It's worth repeating this morning. He said this, there is a common worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have and think they have enough, a cheap Christianity, which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice, which costs nothing and is worth nothing. That was written in the 19th century. 
what would he say about the American church today? Or better yet, what would he say about your Christianity? Are you living a hidden Christian faith? Does your Christianity, does your following Jesus cost you something? Maybe some of you need to ask her a deeper question this morning. Do you actually know King Jesus? See, I fear for some of you here this morning, you've grown up calling yourself a Christian, but you actually don't know the Christ whose name you claim. But there's grace for you this morning. There's grace for you. You can embrace the one who embraces you in all of your mess. Trusting in him, believing that he went to the cross for you and rose again so that you could have life now and be in his kingdom forever. Sojourn, 1 Peter 4 says that this world will be surprised. It'll be surprised when you don't join in with them. And when you don't join in with with them, they will malign you for that. But take heart, that's confirmation that you're following the king. Our identity as God's people now is that of sojourners and exiles. This is not our home. Now we will experience persecution. Now we will experience difficulty in following our risen king. And that's going to happen more and more in this lifetime, in this generation, as we wait for him to come again. But remember, victory will come. So rejoice and be glad. Your reward is great in heaven. Or as Jim Elliott, who was killed for sharing his hope in Jesus, famously said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Amen. I'm looking forward to continuing in this series with you. May God radically transform us as we seek to follow the king of the inverted kingdom. You know, one of the most unifying things that we do as a local church is take communion together every week. It's a picture of the sacrifice of Christ, the bread symbolizing the broken body of Jesus, the the cup symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for us. And this meal reminds us that we're united to God by grace and we're united to one another by grace. But it also, I want us to remind us this morning that we're also united with our brothers and sisters around the world right now. It's a meal for the persecuted. It's a meal for the marginalized. So today as you eat and drink, remember that Christ went outside the camp. He went outside the camp and died a death that was common for common criminals. He was killed For you, died in your place so that you could have life. Know the joys of heaven along with all those who call in his name. So celebrate that this morning, church. And if you you don't call yourself a follower of Christ, if you're not actually following Jesus this morning, I just want to ask you not to come forward because this is a meal for those who are following Jesus, who know him. So I want to invite you this morning, instead of coming and taking the, the bread and the juice this morning, I want you to take Christ. I want you to go to the King of Kings and Cry out to him, become a Christian today. Maybe you've called yourself a Christian your whole life, but this morning you know, man, I've just been claiming the name of Christ. I don't actually know him. Would you tell God that this morning? You can start that relationship with him today. Maybe you've never known Jesus and and, and you know that to be the case, but you can start a relationship with Jesus today. Respond to his grace. He offers it freely to you today. That's why this church is here. We want you to know Jesus so that we can walk together in this life and the life to come, celebrating our King. If you have questions about what it means to follow Christ, come talk to me. Go to a community group this week. We'd love to journey with you in that. Those of you that will come forward, you can come to the front or head to the back and what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you today. Let's pray. Father, this morning we pray, we pray that you would help us to behold your glory. 
that as we wake up tomorrow morning, as we go about our day this week, that we would behold your glory, that as someone confronts us with a difficult decision that might test our ethics, whether we're going to follow the King of Kings or we're going to go the way that's going to serve our own self-interest, Lord, I pray that we behold your glory and embrace life at the margins and all the consequences that come with that in this life because we know that the kingdom of heaven is ours. Lord, help us to walk in that way, to make much of you. And Lord, I pray that as things become more difficult for your people, become more difficult for your church here in America, that we would say yes and amen because we know that the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ will shine more radiantly, more brightly in that contrast. Lord, help us not to run the other way, but to run headlong into that for your glory and the good of others. We need your help, Lord. Help us to follow you faithfully and help us to help one another to do that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.